This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 17. We'll be reading the whole chapter, so we'll be going through verse 1 through 16. If you'd like to follow along in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, you can turn to page 59. Page 59. Exodus chapter 17. Please rise now for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot it out, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray once more. Father, we thank you for this time of worship, singing songs of praise, hearing from your very word. And now we ask for your spirit to teach us, give us understanding, to impress upon us what you have for us this morning. Satisfy us with your holy food, with the word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you've been with us for the past few months, uh, you know that we have been in the book of Exodus, and our plan is to eventually cover this entire book. Uh, but we're going to do it in two parts. And so today is actually going to be the last message in part one, and we are going to pick it back up sometime later in 2019. Uh, next Sunday, if you join us, we're going to be starting a mini-series through the book of Jonah with a real missions emphasis leading up to uh, the missions conference at the end of, this, at end of December, uh, CMC South. The four pastors of the church are going to be sharing this series together, so you're going to actually get a chance to hear from Pastor Joseph and Pastor Thomas, our Chinese pastors, and Fred and I will also be preaching in the Chinese congregations as well. So that should be a treat for us as a congregation in the next four weeks. Uh, so today what I want to do is to wrap up with chapter 17. And uh, let me do that by first reminding you of the setting where our whole story takes place. Not much uh, more than a month earlier than the events that are recorded in chapter 17, the Israelites had experienced a great salvation as God parted the Red Sea and he delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. But then, as we saw last week, he led them straight into a wilderness. And we saw how God tested them, how he allowed them to experience thirst and hunger, hunger in order to teach them to trust and obey that we said, is why he tests his people. It's not in order to, to weed them out, but he tests us in order to build us up. Now, this kind of testing is God's prerogative, right? He is the Lord Almighty. He has every right to test his people, which is what makes the actions of the Israelites in our passage that much more shocking. Because we read in today's text that the people have turned the table on the Lord and they begin to test him. Let me read to you in verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? It looks apparently here that they've put God in the dock God in the dock. That phrase comes from an essay by C.S. Lewis. The dock is referring to the enclosure that's found in older criminal courtrooms where the defendant would sit. He would sit in the dock. So to be put in the dock means to be put on trial. And that's essentially what the Israelites are doing to the Lord. By testing him, they are putting him in the dock. They are putting him on trial. They are questioning him like a prosecutor would. It's audacious that they would do such a thing. Lewis's point is, um, in, in his essay is that modern man, humanity today, has really embraced a similar role reversal. We have audaciously ascended to the judge's bench. We have cloaked ourselves in the judge's robe, and we have placed God in the dock. What Lewis was trying to do was he, was he was trying to analyze the barriers that modern Christians are going to face when they try to present an ancient faith to modern unbelievers. His point is that if you approach unbelievers with a focus on their sins, and you assume that they, they carry around a sense of guilt before God the judge, you're most likely not going to connect with most modern unbelievers. It's because 
of the fact that they now see themselves on the bench and God is in the dock. So most of the sins that we assume that they feel guilty for are actually tolerated and normalized. And so that's what makes sharing the gospel in our day so challenging. And so if we want to connect to modern unbelievers, then pointing out those overt sins is probably not going to be the most effective. Focusing on their behavior, focusing on their outward sins and how the gospel is the solution is probably not going to get you very far in that conversation because they don't judge their behavior according to God's word anymore. So that gospel conversation, Lewis is saying, is going to go a whole lot further if you address their inner needs, their emptiness, their spiritual hunger and thirst, and you demonstrate then how the gospel is the answer. Show them how faith in Christ, show them how in his life and death and resurrection that he is going to satisfy and quench those deepest longings. Because that's a subjective reality that modern unbelievers actually do identify with. That's how Lewis says you connect them with the gospel today. So that's really, I, I think, what the, the passage that we read this morning is actually trying to do. We are going to see the Israelites struggling with a deep thirst, a deep thirst that God himself is going to quench, but in a most surprising way. So I've broken down our passage into three parts. If you want to follow along, uh, you'll see an outline in your bulletin. These are the three sections of our message this morning. First, we're going to look at the questioning of God. Second, the trial of God. And third, the presence of God. Let's begin with the questioning of God. And that's really what we see the Israelites doing in the beginning of chapter 17. We're told that God continued to move the Israelites from place to place, and now he leads them to a new location to make camp. This place is called Rephidim, which means resting place. But it is far from restful because they discover there's no water to drink here. Now, previously in chapter 15, verse 22, they did have water, but it was just undrinkable. They grumbled against God, and yet he was merciful to a very embittered people, and he sweetened the water for them. But this time around, this time, there's not even any water to sweeten. And so in verse 2, as we just read, the people begin to quarrel with Moses, demanding water. Now look with me in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so they're questioning Moses' motives. Why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt just to kill us in the wilderness? They're deeply suspicious of his motives to the point that Moses is actually worried. They're going to harm him. They're going to kill him. In verse 4, he complains to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Well, what he needs to do is he needs to help them see that their quarrel is not really with him, but ultimately with God. They're really quarreling with the Lord. They're questioning the Lord and his motives because ultimately Moses is only leading them as he is being led by the pillar of cloud that the Lord has sent. And so what's happening to them Quarreling against the Lord is really a common human condition. You see, when we experience dissatisfaction in life, when, when these deep inner thirsts of ours go unquenched, we get disillusioned. We grow disappointed in God. 
Now, if you're a non-believer, it just confirms your assumption that there really is no God. If you're a believer, well, then it leads you to begin questioning him. Can we count on God? Can we really trust his motives? Does he really have my best in mind? Is he really there for me? This is what the Israelites dealt with. These are the questions they asked. Look at verse 7 with me. And he, Moses, called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the ultimate question they were asking. Is the Lord among us or not? They're not sure anymore. And that's why they so quickly turned their eyes back to Egypt. They turned their eyes onto idols, which is going to be a problem that's going to plague them throughout this wilderness experience. It's because they're not sure if the Lord is among them or not. But do you see just how audacious just how insulting it is for the Israelites to ask that very question. Because I'm fairly certain that morning, that morning when they woke up, there was fresh manna on the ground. I, I am sure they were able to gather enough to feed themselves, to feed their family, to feed their livestock, because that's exactly what it says in the uh, end of chapter 16 in verse 35. Chapter 16, verse 35 says, For 40 straight years, God provided manna on a daily basis until they came to habitable land. And so there was definitely manna there on the ground that morning. But later in the day, when they discover that there's no water, well, the Israelites are quick to quarrel and they're slow to trust that God is going to somehow provide, as he already has time and time again. They have clear evidence of his gracious provision in front of them, and yet what they fixate on is what they're missing, what's not there. And so they quarrel and they grumble. Just imagine with me a teenager whose mother prepares his lunch every single school day and always has a warm meal ready when he comes home. But then one day, he comes home from school and his stomach is growling. He's so hungry. He goes into the kitchen and he sees that his mother hasn't even started cooking yet. And he has the audacity to ask, Mom, are we going to have any dinner tonight or not? Boy, you, you don't ask that question. He has clear evidence every single day of his mother's provision. And yet he's fixated on what's missing, on his empty stomach. So do you see? He's not just questioning if there's dinner tonight. Really, he's questioning his mother's intentions. He's questioning her goodness. He's questioning her ability to provide for his needs. And so this question here in verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? It's just as insulting to ask that of God. They're testing him. That's what verse 7 actually says. Verse 7 says, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? What's he going to do with this water problem that we have? They're testing him. They're, they're, they're putting God in the dock. That word for quarrel uh, that's used here is also used elsewhere in the Old Testament to, uh, to describe indicting someone 
are calling for judgment against someone. And so to quarrel against God and to test him is to put him on trial, on a trial that centers on the very question of whether or not God is really there for us. What he does about this water problem is going to tell us if he really is among us or not. But just like how that teenager is using the provision of dinner as a test of his mother's goodness and of her faithful provision in his life, that's how the Israelites are using the provision of water. Is the Lord really good? Is he really there for us? That's what they're trying to find out. That's what they're testing to see. Well, friends, we can look at the Israelites, and we can imagine that teenager, but we just have to recognize we're all guilty of this. We do the same. We have to recognize how we tend to overlook all the evidence of God's good grace and provision in our lives and how we fixate on what's missing. We love to fixate on what's not there. God, why haven't you answered this particular prayer? Why haven't you given me that acceptance letter yet? Why haven't you given me that job I've been striving for? Why haven't you given me a spouse? Why haven't you given me a child? Whatever it is, whatever that thing is we're missing, that's the, the thing that we're fixating on in our minds, we are now using it to judge the goodness of God's providence. Maybe using it to judge whether he's present or not, whether he's really there for you. We put God in the dock He's on trial in our minds. Is the Lord really there for me? I don't know. I'm not so sure anymore. This is how many of us treat God. We put him on trial. I've done it. But you know, it's the way that he responds to being tested, to being put in the dock, that really just blows my mind and really puts me back in my place. This leads to our second point. Let's consider now the trial of God. So after the people quarrel and they put God to the test, after Moses complains to God, he fears for his life, then the Lord responds in verse 5. Look there. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Now, when Moses passes before the people with the staff of God in his hand, I can only imagine what those Israelites were thinking. They were probably fidgeting, and they were sweating, nervous as to what is he going to do with that staff? Because they've seen that staff in action, right? They, they, they've seen it turn into a serpent. They, they've seen that staff be used to strike the Nile and turn it to blood. They've seen that staff part the Red Sea. And so they know by now that that staff represents the sovereign power of Yahweh, the great I Am. So what is Moses planning on doing with that staff? Is he going to strike us with it? But that's what makes God's response so fascinating. Look at what the Lord says in verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Friends, you do not want to miss what's happening here. 
When God says, I will stand before you, that whole idea there of standing before someone in ancient times was used typically to describe someone standing before royalty, standing before a king to face judgment of some kind, which is Therefore, shocking because you would have thought it would be the other way around. They should be the ones standing before the Lord, but it's the Lord standing before the people at the rock of Horeb. Now, that, that name there, Horeb, is another name for Sinai. Most commentators think that it's some rocky outcrop around the area of Mount Sinai, or maybe it's perhaps at the very base of the mountain. But it's basically in ancient dock, right? Now, you would think that God would be the one to ascend the bench and play the judge in this trial, but instead, he's positioning himself as the defendant. He's standing on the rock. He's standing in the dock. Now, pay attention to what he says next. He says, strike the rock. The rock that he is standing on Friends, that is another way of saying, strike me. The Israelites probably thought that God was going to tell Moses to strike them because they're the ones grumbling, they're the ones quarreling, they're the ones that deserve to be struck, but instead God takes the strike. You see what's happening here? They have a quarrel with God. They want to blame him, but here he's bearing their blame, receiving their blow, And out of this act of self-substitutionary love, living, life-giving waters begin to flow. This is how God answers their question in verse 7. They're not sure if the Lord is really there for them. This is how he answers. He says, I am so there for you. I am so for you that I will take your place in the dock I will take your punishment. I will be struck, and out of me will flow living waters that will quench your deepest inner thirst. That's how God shows people that he's there for them. He demonstrates his grace. He bears their blame so that they can now enjoy his unmerited kindness. That is how he proves that he is truly among his people. You know, this incident on the rock points, of course, to a greater show of grace that we find later in the pages of the New Testament. I I, want to show you how the Apostle Paul takes our passage and how he interprets it and applies it to the church. So if, if if you will, can you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? If you're using that Blue Pew Bible, it's on page 957. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 10. And, and as you're doing that, l- let me just kind of set the context for you here. Um, Paul is in the middle of writing to the Corinthians, warning them not to participate in the idolatrous feasts that take place in the pagan temples around the city. Because most likely, these Christians were tempted to still join in these feasts, not because they actually sought to worship that particular god or goddess, but because That's where the guilds met. That's where business was typically conducted in these pagan temples over a feast. And so to stop going to these feasts now that you're a Christian would put you in a very severe economic disadvantage compared to your colleagues. 
So from a practical standpoint, if you want to provide for your family as you have done so before, you felt like you just had to participate, even though these feasts would feature idol worship and feature a lot of sexually immoral activity. And apparently, some of these Corinthians assumed that their baptism and they assumed that their participation in the Lord's Supper offered for them some sort of spiritual protection, making them impervious to the effects of idolatry and of sexual immorality. And Paul says to them, no, you should know better. You have the Old Testament. You have the book of Exodus. You have the wilderness generation of Israel as a test case, an example for you. You saw what happened to them at Massa. At Meribah, let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay, so, so Paul is drawing here a general comparison between the passing of the Red Sea and Christian baptism. And as well, he is connecting the miracle of manna and the miracle of water coming from the rock. He's connecting it with the Lord's Supper. Now, Paul makes a fascinating interpretive move here when, when he identifies that rock in the wilderness with Christ himself. Now, it's very interesting, but actually, it's not that novel of a move when you consider the many times in the Old Testament where God himself is identified as Israel's rock. And so what Paul is doing is he's just extending that metaphor, extending that analogy to Christ. To say that Christ was the rock is to suggest that Christ was actually the one sustaining them with life-giving water for 40 years in the wilderness. To say that Christ was the rock is to say that Christ was the one being struck by Moses' staff in chapter 17. Christ stood on the rock. Christ stood in the dock. Which really means for us that when he finally ascended his cross... Jesus was completing what he started there in the wilderness. Just as he did in Exodus, Christ was once again substituting himself in the place of sinners, bearing their blame, receiving their blows, and out of this act of self-substitutionary love, mercy and forgiveness began to flow. Our deepest thirst our greatest human need to be reconciled with our maker is sufficiently quenched now by the sacrifice of Christ. Friends, you have to realize that God could not have loved you more than this. He could not have shown in any greater way that he is for you and he's there for you than by sending his son to bear your blame and to be struck down for you. Jesus allowed himself to be put on trial because he knew that his father would vindicate him by the resurrection. And so, friends, if you're looking for proof that God is truly among us, if you're looking for evidence that God is there for us, then look no further than the crucified and risen Christ. That's the answer. 
Now, let's stay here in Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 10. So, remember, he, he's, he's saying here that Christ was the one nourishing Israel in the wilderness, and yet they rebelled against Christ, really, and they committed idolatry. And their baptism in the sea and their feeding on the spiritual food and drink did not make them impervious to judgment. So keep reading in, in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10. Nevertheless, even though all of them experienced these things, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. So Paul's point to the Corinthians is that if you are participating in sin and idolatry, no matter your excuse, no matter how practical it might sound, you're fooling yourself to put any assurance in your participation in baptism or in the Lord's Supper. The Israelites serve as an example of this. Their example demonstrates that you can be baptized, you can take communion, and yet you can be overthrown if you do not flee idolatry. Now, Paul's not suggesting that Christians are never tempted by idolatry. That's not what he's saying. But he is suggesting that a Christian will desire to flee idolatry whenever it rears its ugly head. That's what he's commanding us to do. Now, I know in our day, idolatry doesn't usually take the form of feasting in a pagan temple. But it could look like making compromises in your faith just in order to stay competitive or to stay relevant when compared with your colleagues and your classmates. And so we often tell ourselves, you know, I, I, I've got to cut corners because everyone else does. Or I've got to overwork even though it means neglecting my family because I've got to provide for my family. Or, you know, I, I've got to hang out with my colleagues even though I know it's in an environment steeped in immorality. But, you know, whatever the compromise we tend to justify it by appealing to practical reasons, much like how a Corinthian would justify going to an idolatrous feast, and much like how an Israelite would justify collecting more manna than allowed, or not observing the Sabbath day, or just complaining about the lack of water altogether. But why we compromise, if you think about this, is because deep down, we're not sure if the Lord is there for us. Is he among us or not? And when we're not sure how to answer that question, we take matters into our own hands and we begin to look to other things and look to other people for solutions, for answers. And that, that's the definition of idolatry. But God has vindicated himself and he has proven his love for us in not sparing his own son for us. He has put him in the dock. He has put him on the cross. That just reminds me of something else that Paul said in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, is the Lord among us or not Exhibit A is Christ 
on the cross. That's the evidence. Trial over. We know the answer. Yes, he is among us. He is for us. Now, if we turn back to, turn back to Exodus 17, you know, this final answer, of course, to Israel's question in verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? The final answer, of course, for them won't come until a thousand years later, until the coming of Christ. Like we just said, Jesus is God's final answer, but he still does, in our text, offer some answer to his people. So let's briefly look at this battle with the Amalekites, and let's look at the presence of of God. This is our third and final point. We're introduced in verse 8 to Amalek. It's an ancient tribal people whose namesake was uh, named after, uh, the namesake was named after the grandson of Esau. And so uh, the Amalekites were distant relatives to the Israelites um, uh, who were, uh, the, uh, the Israelites, remember, are the descendants of Jacob, Esau's twin brother. And so that whole ancient feud between those brothers would really explain the bad blood going on here and why the Amalekite army would actually surprise attack the Israelites. And we know that this attack was unprovoked because based on Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, let me read to you verses 17 to 18. It says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. And so what was happening here is that the Amalekites ruthlessly attacked the tail end of the Israelite camp where all of the weakest and oldest and slowest Israelites were located. It was cruel. It was unprovoked. And here in verse 9, Joshua is introduced to us for the very first time. You, we, uh, if you're familiar with him, you know he's going to play a prominent role as a military leader uh, leading Israel into the promised land. And we see here why he's qualified for that role. He is faithful and obedient to Moses, and ultimately he's faithful and obedient to the Lord. Now, when Joshua led the men to battle on the next day, Moses, we're told, took Aaron and Hur with him on top of a hill overlooking the battlefield. Now, we know Aaron. That's his brother. We probably don't know her. Uh, well, Jewish tradition maintains that he is Miriam's husband, so this could be Moses' brother-in-law. So he literally has his two brothers with him, and most notably, he were told that Moses had the staff of God in his hand. Right? So let's start reading in verse 11. Verse 11, when, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, I know sometimes this story is used to emphasize the importance of prayer, right? It's noted how often in the ancient world, prayer was conducted with, with hands lifted up. And with the assistance of Aaron and her, there's typically an application here about the importance of praying together, that we pray corporately. We need to help each other to persevere in prayer. Now, I, I see why many messages tend to go in that direction, but I'm not sure if Moses was simply praying, I, I'm, I'm sure he was praying for victory as he's watching the battle unfold, but, but I don't think the emphasis 
is on Moses' hands and his perseverance in prayer. I think the emphasis is on the staff of God in Moses' hands, that staff that symbolized the very presence and power of the Lord God himself. So holding that staff high up in the air sent a clear message to the Israelites that we are only winning this battle because God is fighting for us. And the fact that God would allow the battle to swing the other way every time Moses got tired and lowered the staff just goes to show the point he's trying to make about how important the presence of the Lord is in our lives. I think that's why there's such a focus on the staff of God, both in the earlier story in the chapter and in this one. You see, as long as the staff of God is in action, you're going to get water from that rock or you're going to get victory in that battle because when the staff of God is there, it means God is there. God is among us and he is acting powerfully on our behalf. Church, the Lord truly is present among us. He's really there for us and among us, fighting our battles, leading us to the promised rest. That's the whole point of this little vignette here at the end of chapter 17. But you know, the problem is we're just so prone to forget and we're so quick to, dis to be discouraged in the face of the battles that we have in our lives. And that's why, that's why we need to remember we need to remind ourselves of the powerful presence of God in our lives. And that's exactly what the Lord instructs Moses to do in verse 14. He says to help the people remember. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And so God instructs Moses to write a book literally to, to write a scroll about what happened here on this day so that we can pass on this story about God's powerful presence in their lives. And then, and then what he's told to do is to build an altar. Look at verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now that word there for banner refers to a signal pole or to a battle standard that you would use to rally troops together in a battle. And that's really, if you think about it, how that staff was being utilized as a battle standard, as a signal pole. And when Moses said that his hand was upon the throne of the Lord, what he meant was when he held up that staff up in the air, it was like he was holding up the throne of God. The Lord, if you think about this, was essentially sitting on his throne, sovereignly ruling over what took place in the battlefield, leading his people to victory. Church, I, I know we don't set up altars anymore, in order to help us remember these truths because we have the cross and we have the empty tomb. They now serve that purpose to remind us of that truth. But just like Moses, I think we do need help to not forget. We need more errands. 
We need more hers in our lives to help us to remember. We need church members to help us hold up our arms. That is, what we need is we need, to, we need each other to regularly remind each other that no matter how tough the battle is we're going through, the Lord is still on his throne, and he truly is among us. That's why we need each other. We're going to forget on our own. We're going to be discouraged on our own. We need each other to remind each other the Lord reigns. The Lord rules. The Lord is truly among us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and the way that it encourages us to know how gracious you are towards us, especially in the person and the work of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for not striking us down, but for taking the strike for us, loving us in such a way to prove that you truly are with us. You are for us. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.